Hey everybody, welcome to the Vel News Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Delaney, still fired up about the Tour of Flanders here with my traveling mate, Andy Hood. Hoodie, how are you, sir? Good to see you again, Ben. We just split ways, I guess it was yesterday, at the uh, Belgian airport. I guess it was totally packed yesterday. It was spring break was starting in Belgium. And at least the security line I went through was just packed full of uh, young Belgian teenagers going on vacation. It was madness. We what left ourselves three plus hours and needed more. I had to chop a bunch of people in the in the passport line. I apologize, people, for being such a jerk face um, and ran to my gate to just narrowly catch the flight. So sorry about that for being a bad person, uh, but happy to be home. Uh, happy to have spent a good full weekend change there. From Gent-Wivelgum through Dwarves or Flandern, uh, then the granddaddy tour of Flanders, where the women's racing and the men's racing was awesome. And it was just up there. I love Flanders for many reasons. Um, and this edition delivered on all of them, you know, uh, in bike racing. Sometimes it's just he or she with the biggest engine wins. Sometimes it's tactics that decides, and in this edition, we saw both um, played out in, in a variety of intricate and uh, compelling ways. So on this show, we're going to dig into that. We're going to talk about the tactics of the women's race, the tactics of men's race. We're going to look at uh, Matthew Vanderpool's power numbers, thanks to Valenu's coaching calmness, Zach Nair, who digs into those ginormous numbers for us, uh, and then talk a little bit about gear, gear for the classics. You know, it's always one of the things I love about going over there is just digging around, walking by team buses. You know, access is a bit limited, a bit more limited than it used to be, but we're still able to to get in, chat with the mechanics, especially that going to hotels about what they're using and why. And so we'll we'll talk a, a bit about that as well. But let's 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 start with the racing part. Let's let's talk the the women's race where you know a lot of heavy hitters, Anamiek uh, Van Vluten coming in as the defending champion. Uh, coming back from three weeks, Tenerife doing some altitude training. She was clearly a name to beat and on form, uh, Elisa Balsamo, who we've been calling Balsamo for a long time. She corrected the press at large saying, actually, my name's Balsamo, not Balsamo. Uh, she clearly on form had won three of three races coming into Flanders. Uh, and then SD works had, uh, a highly motivated and highly talented crew who hadn't quite yet delivered to their potential so far this year. So that was that was a stage coming into Flanders. We, we saw some new, uh, they changed the course every so often. And this year was the first women's edition that tackled the famous Koppenberg, uh, the road that kicks up to like 22% in the middle. Um, it was came like in the midpoint of the race, so it wasn't necessarily the decisive point, but uh, super cool to... To see, so Andy, what were some of the expectations coming into the women's race, and, and what uh, proved true, and and how did the racers flip the script on what the pundits were saying was going to happen? Yeah, one thing that really stood out this weekend was just having the fans back at the race. Right, I mean, the last two years have been COVID additions. Um, there was kind of a lockdown, twenty twenty two, and even last year there was still quite a bit of restriction in terms of. Uh, you know, the fans couldn't really go out on the roads. So both during the men's and women's race, the the, the Belgians were out back and forth. So that was great to see. You know, they did take out the uh, Kappelmer, uh out of the course the last two years. They, they said because of uh, COVID, they just didn't want, you know, 
two, three, four thousand people, five thousand people all around that emblematic climb. So that was not part of the men's race this year. Um, but so that was a great thing just to see, you know, back at the, the start uh, Saturday morning, Sunday morning in Antwerp. We were there for the start of the men's race and then the women's race uh, started at Odenard and both places, you know, good crowds. A different thing this year as well is they had the women's race finished after the men's. Uh, Flanders Classics, the, the organizer there, you know, they've been pretty proactive and creative about trying to, you know, they've increased the prize money for the women's race, $20,000 for Kopecky. Yeah, so it's now equal to men's and women's. Both races have a 50,000 euro purse, 20K a piece to the winner, men's and women's. Yeah, good to see. Yeah, yeah, that's great to see. So this is, they put the women's race to finish after the men's race. And uh, there was a stat that came out from the organizers, you know, a lot more you know, higher viewer numbers, more fans, you know, hung around and waited for the race. Um, so it was great to see just kind of the general ambiance, you know, it was kind of back to that classic Flanders feeling. Yeah. And you know, some of the course was done for the benefit of fans. A skeptical, cynical person might say, well, it's for the benefit of the VIP. So for instance, the, the, the Ode Aquermont Paderberg double, uh, you know, they hit Quermont three times. Um, and there's huge VIP tents set up, you know, kind of like midway up the long climb. It's like 2.2 kilometers. Uh, so it kicks at the bottom, uh, flattens out a bit. Uh, and in the fields there is where they set up these massive VIP tents uh, and then kicks again towards the top. I think it's a great thing that they hit that multiple times uh, because that's the stuff we all want to see, whether we're paying VIPs or whether we're, the the lowly ink stink ink stained wretches in the press room, you know, watching on our our screens, seeing those action packed cobble sections is is what we came for, not like the the dreary highway early morning miles that nobody's really paying attention to. So, I think that's a that's a welcome thing to hit these loops. It's, it still uh, cracks me up looking at the the maps of these. It just looks like a plate of spaghetti of the routes going every which way, but the. The Belgian riders who've been doing it for years, and certainly organizers, know these roads by the like the back of their hand. And it's—I don't want to say unlike any other race, but it's for a race of that stature. It is unlike any other of the the monuments in that these women and men are racing on what Americans would see to be sidewalks. If a sidewalk had big cobblestones and kicked at twenty-two percent, but I'm saying like in terms of the width of the thing, they're super narrow. I mean, there's bits where they're on wide roads, but the the decisive parts come on just a little goat pass. So uh, positioning is, I mean, that's a word that I heard, you know, dozens of times from writers of like, what's important going in, what played a key role. You know, if it's like a high speed, bigger field cyclocross, that if you're not at the front or the, where the people are sprinting up the hills, you're track standing, maybe even like putting a foot down at the bottom and just you know, re- repeat that effect. Uh, you know, a few dozens of times over the course of the race, that uh, that will take it out of even even the best riders. So, super fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, it's it's these these roads, these uh, cobblestone climbs. You know, at Odquermot and Paderberg and the Kopenberg. You know, these roads. They're all these old farm roads, and they're really built for. Uh, they were the reason the cobblestones are there is so that the horses could get traction as they hauled their wagons up these old farm roads. And, you know, slowly over the centuries, that's over, over the decades, obviously, after World War II, these, these roads started getting paved in. Same with Perry Robay, these old, these old roads were cobbled over, what, you know, more than 100 years ago, just so that 
the, the farm carts and, and, and carriages would not be stuck in mud, which is quite muddy, obviously, in this part of uh, that part of Europe. So, you know, they're not made for bike racing. <laughs> they're not made for uh they're not made for cars but man they're they're great they're great to watch i mean blenders i agree it's it's like uh to me i think it's you know i personally i would say that perry Roubaix is my favorite personal race uh but flanders is right there it's like it's like apples and oranges they're both great races and i thought i agree with you uh ben i thought sunday's racing both the men's and women's was spectacular exceeded my expectations i have to say sure we saw uh, American Clara Hansinger get in the early all-day break uh, with another rider. She, Hansinger was enjoying a lot of uh, attention from the announcers about you know, having experience on the Koppenberg. She won a race used to be called Koppenberg Cross, so she's for, certainly familiar with going up that in the wet and the mud, but uh, with slightly different tires and after having not done you know, 100 kilometers or so uh, beforehand. But that was, that was good to see. Uh, that I know Van Vluten was hoping for a more aggressive race. Uh, the women's race, you know, followed that script we often see in road racing where the early break goes. And then, uh, we know the, the, the contenders are, are coming later. Um, Van Vluten was hoping for a more, more aggressive race to, to whittle down the contenders earlier on, but, uh, didn't quite go according to plan. Um, she is, you know, she's on Movistar, a world tour team, solid riders. But I was impressed by how she seemingly single-handed sort of brought the race back uh, coming into the old Aquaremont uh, and then made the move as she did last year on the Paderberg, which is the last steep climb uh, before they hit the finish some, what, 18K later or something. However... Uh, SD works, uh, could match her with not one, but, but two riders. Uh, and so that was, I don't want to say case closed, but, uh, with two versus two against one, you know, even if you're a, a Annemiek van Vluten, the odds aren't looking good for you. Yeah. It was interesting tactic because, um, Kopecky obviously later won the race was saying there was kind of two battles going on. One, they wanted to get rid of Balsamo. Um, I think this is probably the longest race Balsamo had done, or at least, uh, you know, this level, especially with the pressure of being the world champion, you know, obviously they wanted to get rid of her, uh, to eliminate her from being there in a case of a reduced bunch sprint. I mean, she'd won three big races right in a row coming into Flanders. So, uh, it was just in the interest of most everyone to try to get rid of her. And, uh, Kopecky said that she kind of was, we could, they could see her losing contact, some of those early climbs. So I think it's one reason why they really poured it on when Van Vluten went. They just wanted to make sure that Balsamo was not going to be coming back. And, uh, you know, SD works, they had the numbers, right? I mean, they had, I think, uh, you know, three or four riders uh, in that top 15. You know, they had the numbers there to really uh, put the anchor on Van Vluten. Because, you know, last year she got clear in the pot Potterberg, and it is, I think it's about 13, 14 Ks to the finish when you come off the Paderberg into uh, Odenard and then she get this time trial at home. So they were trying to play it, you know, they needed to get rid of Balsamo, but then neutralize uh, Van Vluten at the same time. So absolutely superb tactics from that team. Well, and then initially, you know, SD Works had three riders there. There's uh, Marlon Russer was also there and she, like the rest, would just pummel the group with, with attacks and, you know, Anamique would bring it back, and then just as soon as she did, another SD Works would go and 
uh, that was I was still impressed that uh, Van Vluten was able to hang each time with that because you know, even if you're the fastest, the strongest, uh, physics is not in your advantage if you have multiple people taking turns on you. But yeah, came down two on one. Lada Kopeka in the Belgian national jersey uh, threw up her hands at the at the finish line, much to the delight of the crowd there at the finish line and then just like all the various watching parties uh, around Belgium, including there in the town square of Odenard. So that was a, the party was already bumping, but that just uh, turned it up uh, another notch. Earlier in the day, we saw uh, more cat and mouse after some high fireworks, high power uh, battles going on. We expected coming into this race, it was going to be Wout Van Aert versus Matthew Vanderpool, uh, the the clash of the Titans. Uh, Wout tapped out with COVID, stupid COVID, still still hanging on, still hanging around. Uh, and then Tade Pogacar, of course, was uh, an entrance into the race. His first big, well, his first time at Tour de Flanders for sure. He had done uh, Dwarves, Dorflanderen earlier in the week, um, and showed that yeah, just being the strongest is not enough. He missed a move, getting you know squeezed out on these tiny roads, doors, door to Blandering, uses many of the same roads as Tour of Flanders. It's often referred to as the mini Tour of Flanders. He missed the move. Uh, he nearly got across chasing solo like one guy versus eight. Uh, those eight guys were well aware of who was coming and they put their heads down and rode, so he did not get there. Um, but he was nearly able to to bridge. But so that was that experience was fresh in his mind from Wednesday coming into Sunday's race that uh, he did not intend to miss the move. Uh, he took a spill early on in the race. I, I didn't see what the, what happened there. We just heard that in race radio. It was, it was a, enough of a crash that he's lost his uh, SRM head unit powered on. So uh, he wasn't doing the Chris Froome stare at stims, just judging his effort by the numbers on his bar, but uh, seemed to be able to produce okay power numbers regardless of the fact that that was not being measured. So, so who were the, who were the key players there when, uh, the race got down to the, the business end, hoodie? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting race because, um, coming into those last two laps of the, uh, Oquermont and the Paderberg and then with that penultimate lap with the Copenberg in, in between there, um, that's usually where the race really starts to, to go off. And this year, we saw that pretty big group go just before the Quermont. That group of like 15 riders um, went earlier on the, uh, I can't remember the name of the exact sector where they went. Um, but, they, you know, they had like a minute on the main favorites group. Uh, there were some big riders in that group. Betty All was in there, uh, Mads Peterson. And that was kind of the buzz uh, at the start. Everyone was kind of saying that, you know, everyone knew the big surges were going to come from, uh, Pogacar and Vanderpool. So a lot, of, a lot of writers were saying, look, the only way to hang with those guys is to be in front and let them come up to you. So I think a lot of guys were hoping to try to get up that first kind of lap, at least get through the Quermont and maybe even the Copenberg before, you know, hitting the Paderberg and try to get ahead of and anticipate a little bit the big surges. But that all came together really on the Quermont. And that's when you know, Pogachar just lit up that climb. I mean, that was just absolutely stunning to see how he accelerated, you know, going th- riding through traffic. You know, he's kind of in the middle of that bunch and then weaving through all the guys that were up the road already. And they, it all kind of came together in that moment. And that's where really Pogachar kind of gapped out uh, 
Vanderpool. Uh, remember coming over the top of that first Claremont, uh, Pogacar had a kind of a pretty sizable gap on uh, Vanderpool, and he said he really had to dig deep. You know, there is, of course, that pavement section going back into the Koppenberg, so it kind of allowed Vanderpool some time to regroup and kind of because it was really just busted up into little pieces under uh, Pogacar's, uh, you know, really impressive accelerations. And, I mean, it's like, what, do you, what can you say about Pogacar? I, I just love the way this kid races. I mean, uh, he's never raced. I mean, he raced San Remo once, uh, I think a couple, you know, a year or two ago, but I think he was 12th two years ago. You know, goes to San Remo, and, you know, he rode, he was, you know, tried to blow up the race, the Poggio, ended up fifth, uh, you know, comes in to uh, Flanders, never had even raced it. Um, they did some recon after Dwarves, but, uh, you know, I didn't really know the roads, but the guy, he's just a racer. He just, he just races for what he says. He just enjoys it. He's still young. He's 23. You know, he's so good that it's great to see him just willing to risk um, you know, a crash here could really ruin his tour, right? So we've never seen a Grand Tour rider at the peak, you know, when going back over the last 20, 30 years, whenever someone kind of hit that stride, you know, they're winning the tours, one, two, three tours in a row. You know, they steer, they steer clear, well clear of the classics. You know, they're not going to be racing these races that are, you know, dangerous, that have a lot of crashes in them, especially race Flanders. And here's Pogacar. He was out there just throwing elbows, throwing down these huge bombs, and I think it's absolutely fantastic for cycling to see a guy like Pogacar race. And he's going to be back next week for uh, Flesh and uh, Liege. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. It's fantastic to see. It's because it's unexpected for the, the reasons that you laid out, among others. Zach Nair, our coaching columnist, uh, teased out some of the ginormous numbers that Vanderpool is doing. So, for instance, you were talking about how uh, he – got caught out a bit chasing Pogachar the first time up the Quermont. So that effort took Vanderpool four and a half minutes, averaging 525 watts. So that's seven watts a kilo. And that's, uh, you know, coming after you know, the first three hours or so when he was doing probably a pretty healthy effort already. So yeah, he's doing, he's holding 500 watts for, for minutes. Um, if you guys are not, Outside or Vela News subscribers, I'm sorry, you're missing out on some good stuff. If you are, go and check out uh, Nair's piece where he breaks down the numbers. One section is you know looks at some of the main climbs and showing the power for each of those, and it's a, it's an interval session, right? So they're doing big power all day, but then when they get on these climbs, then it's full gas. So Claremont, three minutes, 460 watts. The Wolvenberg, 500 watts for a minute. Uh, the Molenberg, 500 watts for a minute and a half. The Valkenberg, 430 watts for three and a half minutes. Uh, the Berg, 10 out. He's doing 600 watts for two minutes. Just ridiculous numbers over and over and over and on technical sections. You know, these guys are, you know, they're maybe three wide, but there's, you know, a line that they're looking for. They're trying to find a sweet spot. And we saw like Tom Pidcock going up the, the Paderberg, jumping onto the grass, trying to find that one little three inch wide stretch of concrete that lasts for a foot or two they're jumping around so it's not like they're just sitting on a trainer or riding up a hill where they can just relax and stare at the wheel in front of them that's it's it's active bike racing here and it's huge power and uh, as you mentioned you know vanderpool was doing huge power and was off the back <laughs> jason bogaccio yeah it was interesting um 
Vanderpool at, at the press conference after the race was talking about how the climbs at the Tour of Flanders are just perfect for his, his kind of abilities. Um, you know, he's a big guy. He's not going to win the Tour de France. In fact, someone asked him, they said, hey, we've, we're seeing a Tour de France rider almost winning Flanders. You're the you're the new king of Flanders. Could you try to win the Tour de France? <laughs> and, bef- and before the, the journalist even could finish this question, he just said, no, no, no. He goes, I will never win the Tour de France because, you know, those efforts that you just talked about, those intervals and that, that huge power that he can churn, you know, he is just genetically designed to race these kinds of classics. Yes. And like typically we've, we know we've seen like the Alexander Kristoffs or the Tom Bonins or the Fabian Cantillars by bike racing standards, like bigger dudes who can do these high power efforts for a relatively shorter duration not a skinny little climber who can hold very high watts per kilo for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour up a hill, or like in the case of many Grand Tour winners in a time trail also. Uh, usually those are like two different riders. So as an, you know, in addition to the danger of smashing yourself and losing out on the chance for another Tour victory, just the, the power profiles are usually water and oil as far as what the types of riders are that, that excel in this type of race versus uh, a grand tour. Yeah. It was also interesting. Um, yesterday after, uh, um, Sunday's, uh, Flanders, Pogacar went and checked, uh, some of the, uh, the Pave sectors in Northern France, uh, doing a recon ride ahead of what they'll see in the tour de France this summer. And of course the, the Pave in Northern France is very different than what, what we see in Flanders because, um, like you said, the riders are searching out the line, uh, Flanders, but at least typically the Flanders cobbles are much kind of smoother and not as rough. Whereas you go into the Tour de France, right? The, the Perry Roubaix uh, cobbles that are featured in the Tour de France this year, I mean, those are just like chunks of rock that are just stuck in mud. And uh, there was an interview with uh, Sporza yesterday with, with Pogacar. They asked him, you know, will you ever someday race Perry Roubaix? And he kind of goes, ah, not this year, not next year, but he goes, maybe. He goes, one day I will race it. So that, that I love to that's I mean I love to see Pogacar uh, race Perry Roubaix, but it's not going to happen this year. But anyway, back to the race. So what happened after that first uh, Quermont? We got headed next to the Kopenberg. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, Kopenberg. It was it was dry this year. It's been you know raining the weekends. Been raining all week since, but it was dry. So there's you know more traction. Often that climb is so steep and narrow that you know those cobbles may be good for horses' hooves to get traction, but for riders' tires or riders you know, SPD or speed plate cleats. Like if you come off there and you're trying to walk up, uh, it's not so nice, but it was dry enough, fast enough. The, the, the Copenberg didn't uh, necessarily break up the, the race this year, but the, you know, it's the Quermont, uh, and Paderberg double, which uh, came twice, you know, they hit, hit the Quermont first when they came down from Antwerp, uh, and then hit it two more times followed by the, the Paderberg, which, which proved to be the decisive, point in the race so again looking at Vanderpool's numbers you know he's doing 500 watts for nearly five minutes on the Claremont there's a short breather then he's doing 700 watts for a minute of the Paderberg Paderberg you know which peaks at uh, like a 22 percent or so and you know he was saying he was just on the absolute limit trying to stay uh with Pogaccio and we talked to you know other writers who were on their limit and just being ridden away from. Um, we saw, unfortunately, you know, Casper Askren, the winner last year, had a mechanical 
uh, halfway up the Paderberg. Um, his chain came off. He had to climb off the bike and put it back on. And you saw some of his teammates coming past him, shaking their heads at that point. There's nothing you can do, but shake your head, but, uh, you know, a critical point. And it's just a few seconds difference up over the top of the Paderberg. And then there's a bombing fast ascent, but either you're on that train or you're not. And just like an actual train, if you miss the train, this, you know, even as we saw with Pogaccia earlier in the week, you miss the train. That's kind of game over. Uh, that was for many riders. You know, we were expecting to see Vanderpool up there in the final. We weren't necessarily surprised to see Pogaccia up there in the final, but uh, a couple of the riders, Contending for the podium, we were surprised to see uh, Dylan Van Barla, probably like halfway in between the big surprise, no surprise crowd, right? You know, the Ineos rider had, uh, I don't have my notes in front of me, I should, but I feel like he was like 10th or 11th last year, Flanders, so you know, knows his way around the, the Bergs and the, the Cobbles. He was, he was fourth once in Flanders as well, yeah. So up and over the Paderberg, we had some riders we expected to be there, Vanderpool. Uh, Pogacar was driving it. Uh, and then we had the likes of Dylan Van Barla, who, uh, you know, writer from Enios, maybe not an out and out favorite, but not a, uh, a total surprise. He's done one well there in the past. Then we had a young Fred Wright, uh, and Valentin Madois, uh, who was the latter two were a bit of a surprise for me seeing them, um, up there in the mix. Did, did those names surprise you or, what was your take on that that key bunch there towards the end? Yeah, it kind of uh, just confirmed, you know, that general sensation coming into the the classics period this year. You know, with all the illness, you know, guys getting knocked out with COVID, uh, you know, people missing just kind of big blocks of training. You know, kind of coming in to because you know these these classics riders, these specialists, you know, they really start training heavy November December, and they you know it's like a tour rider. It's their peak in July, and they start, uh, you know, already January, February. So you just roll that back with the classics riders. So anyone that kind of missed, you know, a week, two weeks of training uh, coming in in the last, say, two months, you know, really it showed and it played out during this race. You know, Jasper Stoyven, you know, he got sick, missed San Remo. Uh, Peter Sagan wasn't even in the race because he's been so inconsistent. Um Israel Premier Tech pulled their whole team out because guys were just getting shelled. Uh, you know, had one guy finish Perinice. They had three guys raise Dwarves on the Wednesday before Flanders. So they decided just, you know, just to pull their whole team out of the race. So whoever was coming in to these races feeling pretty good actually was going to rise to the top. So that's what happened when you saw guys like uh, uh, Fred Wright, you know, young British writer coming up. He was right in there. And when we talked to him at the finish line, he's like, yeah, you know, I haven't really been sick. My form's been kind of coming up this whole spring. So he saw that kind of play out in some of these names that you kind of expected to be there weren't. And then guys that maybe didn't really expect to be there were there because, you know, like Stefan Kung, you know, he's been steady, consistent this whole spring. And it's because he hasn't not really been sick. So the guys that are at their normal level uh, maybe were, were, you know, filtering a little bit higher in the race because some guys like Sagan, the Van Outs, you know, these guys weren't even in the race or guys that were sick and missed some training like Stoyven and some other guys that might've normally been there just ran out of gas because they, they're not at a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. 
Fred Wright, I don't want to say he ran out of gas, but the last trip up the, the dual one-two punch of the Eau de Quermont and Paderberg, he was the first to be dispatched when Pogacar lit it up. Um, Wright was very happy with his result afterwards. Uh, and then Van Barla and Madois were also dispatched from the Pogacar train. Uh, Vanderpool was the last man standing, just hanging on for dear life. Uh over the Quermont, then uh, over the Paderberg, and then it was uh, a flat and often headwindy run into the finish. So you had the the front two, and then the second two, Van Barla and Madois, each is like two man time trial teams. And as often as the case, you know the the first push is okay. Let's just stay clear, and then the closer the finish got, the the more the games began. And I've really enjoyed watching the the finales. And Vanderpool has been there a few times um and it hasn't favor hasn't always smiled on him so he's he's got some experience of when to go and uh where to position himself Pogacar like we're talking about has never done the race before certainly comes to the finish line of many a race in uh contention to win but uh you know he found himself just glued to Vanderpool's wheel as they're coming in the very long uh dead flat dead straight straight away into a bit of a headwind where with the long camera shot, we in the press room and fans at home could see the second group of Van Barla and Madwa coming up and then another chase group behind. Um, and it, it went very quickly, at least for the, that middle group of uh, being in a position of like, Hey, let's just not get caught by the people chasing us to like, Hey, we're about to just come right over the top of first and second. And now we're sprinting for the win. Um, There's a lot of, chin wagging about how Pogaccio went from either being first or second to being fourth, uh, getting pinched in uh, by Van Barla and Madois coming around on either side of him there in the last uh, 200 meters. So he was unable to to sprint. What what was your take on that? Was that uh, clean bike racing or or, or was uh, was either one of you know Van Barla or Madois out of line for how they raced there in the final? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, uh, Pogacar kind of threw his arms up in frustration at the line, and uh, and Dylan Van Barrow was saying later that uh, Pogacar had a couple of choice words for him at the finish line. Uh, and then later, actually, UAE, their sport director, went uh, to the race jury and reviewed kind of that overhead camera view that we saw. And, uh, you, know, you know, there was a little bit of argy-bargy there, but, you know, clearly... Van Barra and Madua were carrying speed into that uh, sprint. And uh, Pogacar, you know, kind of got caught out in that position. You know, Van Barra kind of came in over the top a little bit. But, you know, by then he was coming past Pogacar, clearly chasing the wheel of Vanderpool. So the jury decided, you know, no no real penalty there, nothing nothing to, to warn a yellow card or a red card. Uh, and, uh, you know, but the thing that I wanted to say about this whole scenario at the end, you know, it, it to me really just reconfirmed that notion that uh, a couple of kind of these uh, golden rules of cycling. One, strongest guy doesn't always win. Yep. To me, Pogacar was the strongest guy in the race. Uh, he didn't win. In fact, he didn't get the podium. But it also tells you, you know, never give up, especially in a race like a, a monument where, you know, you're over 250Ks, more than six hours of racing, you know, the race isn't over to the finish line. It's yeah. an old cliche, but we certainly saw how that played out and proved to be very true Sunday. Um, you know, Madwa and Van Barrow, uh, they said they had, they were talking amongst themselves because, you know, right behind them was, like you said, that three rider chase group. 
And they just said, they said, look, those two guys up the road are going to win. So let's at least me and you work together and drive it all the way to the line. And at least one of us will get the podium. And that was really an important choice that they made to just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing to fend off not only the chasers, but at least at least one of us gets the podium. And like you said, you turn that corner for that right final right-hander going in the finishing straight in the red kite. And suddenly it's like, we're not sprinting for the podium. We could win this bloody thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Pogacar, you know, people have been, like you said, Chen Wagon, he's like, oh, maybe he should have opened up a sprint a little bit earlier just to assure that he would at least get second. Yeah. Um, but, you know, hats off to Vanderpool, man. He read that, uh, he read that perfectly. And, you know, some people said that uh, Vanderpool's, you know, he's so strong and so big, he usually just wins on pure brawn. Uh, you can't say that he didn't play that absolutely perfectly tactically in that final and that was loud because he bounced jump with like 250 meters to go and he had that acceleration to get his speed back up because they were going quite slow and then to be able to fend off those two guys coming in behind him at full speed i mean i thought it was i thought it was vanderpool's uh, most exquisite win personally yeah and just the handling I, I was enjoying how his head was just locked backwards you know often those things guys will be their heads on a swivel they're looking ahead they're looking back they're looking ahead they're looking back Vanderpool for from like 600 meters to go until they got caught, had his head just looking straight backwards. He was like, there was on the far right side of the road and he was just staring him down, which not something I advise amateur cyclists like myself to do (laughs) at the end of a seven hour full gas day ride, looking backwards for minutes at a time, right next to a a fence. But yeah, he just stared him down, opened up. And I don't think Pogacar should have gone earlier. And I salute the fact that he was racing for the win, you know, like he could have jumped at 400 meters or whatever. Like, okay, Vanderpool will come around me, but at least I'll be able to get on the podium. That wasn't his mentality. His mentality was like, I want to effing win and, and race that way. And then he just ended up getting swarmed on both sides at the end. So I, I wouldn't have had it any other way. I mean, bummer for him, but, but from a, a spectator standpoint, I want to see the best in the world racing, not just to get a good result, but to win the whole enchilada. So Heck of, a, heck of a bike race. Yeah, it was also interesting with uh, Vanderpool. You know, a lot of big question marks about him coming into the classics. You know, he had a back injury. He stopped his cyclocross season in December. Our colleague Jim Cotton had a nice piece about what he did and the hard work he put in to come back to get back really to racing. And it's kind of interesting to watch. You know, Vanderpool, of course, he races mountain bikes, cyclocross. He does uh, all these, uh, uh, you know, only thing he hasn't done really done is track racing. Um, but it's almost interesting to see. It's like maybe he's almost even better after not having raced cyclocross because, you know, those guys, Wout, uh, Matteo, they're doing, you know, choice cyclocross yeah, races. Yeah. Full on calendar. But, but to have that break actually might have helped Vanderpool. And, man, he's going to come in this weekend to Amstel Gold and then race uh, Robay. You know, he's going to be hard to beat. We'll see if Wild comes back. We hope Wild's there. Indeed. Indeed. Now, Andy, you had a good piece talking to a quick step mechanic who's a veteran of 30 years of uh, classics racing about the mechanical setups and the changes he's seen over the years. You know, he's like, the bikes have changed, the wheels have changed, the drivetrains have changed. The only things that haven't changed are the, the stones and the hills. Those are those are the same. What, what, what were some of the interesting uh, tidbits you pulled from uh, speaking with him about what the, what the riders were using? This weekend, and then the differences versus what they'll be using 
for Pierre Roubaix. Yeah, he was he was saying how um, you know the bikes they become so integrated and and so uh, uh, you know uh, everything's carbon. He was just saying how you know in his career he's gone from steel to aluminum to carbon. You know the wheels are carbon. He says that now, um, before you know back in the day, you know they were using uh, tubular uh, tires. They have to build out the wheels, and he said that would be you know months and months in advance where the mechanics would be working on the wheels, building them out. They'd be hanging the, the tubular tires like in this dark room where they could dry <laughs> and, and cure. Like just, a fine wine. Yeah, yeah like, like a fine wine, like age, like a fine wine. He says, now, you know, the wheels show up. We take, take the wheels out of the box. You know, we tweak them out a little to make sure they're, they're all lined up. But, he, you know, basically, he said, we take the tires. Now they're all on tubeless because we take the tires out, take the wheels out. We put it all together. And it's a pretty fairly, you know, it's not like the old days where it would take them weeks and months to build these bikes out. Um, but he was just saying how busy, you know, he said, he said they are busier. He said they started working on the, all these bikes right after uh, Dwarves on Thursday. And, uh, uh, you know, busy three days, whereas before he'd say they'd come in just the day before the race, build out the bikes on the Saturday. Mechanics now take them three days to build the bikes out. Generally, he said, you know, there's more bikes. Every rider has more bikes. And every rider has more wheels than ever before. He said, and in the old days, it'd be 10, 12 pairs for a race like uh, Flanders and Roubaix. Now, you know, they have a hundred pair of wheels and they have, you know, people out on the course with the spare wheels. We see that at Flanders. We see that even more so uh, in, in Roubaix in two weeks. Uh, you know, they have the kind of the VIP cars go out ahead of the race and they'll have, you know, people on the team with the Swannies and just other people that they sign, you know, ex pros they get during these races and they'll be along the side of the course. Um, always interesting to talk to mechanics though. They always have uh, interesting stories. You know, some riders, he says, you know, some riders love their bikes. They know all, he said, Casper Asgren, he's like a, a total freak when it comes to numbers and do his bike setup. And he said, he's always out there talking to mechanics, you know, almost every day. And he goes, some riders, they just show up and they get on their bike and they, and they came and they don't even know how to fix their own flat tire. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, I was looking back at a, a piece we did t uh, 10, 11 years ago on cobbles tech and you know, it was cracking me up how different, uh, how, how much things have changed in terms of tires, you know, and that a lot of bikes were 23, maybe 25, like a 25, that was a super fat tire at the time. It was crazy fat. And now 28s were standard for the, the month of the spring classics just across the board. That was, we I mean, see like some variation here and there, but for the most part, uh, women's and men's teams were all on 28s and very often uh, tubeless. You know, speaking of JJ at Cannondale, they've been experimenting with Victoria's airliners, the foam liners for a few years now. And now they use that exclusively every time they use tubeless. Um, and if, the airliners you can envision like a little like a foam pool noodle, um, but this is about the width of the rim that goes inside the tire. And the idea uh, is twofold. Um, one thing with tubulars, one argument for that the old school folks would always give you as to why the pros are using it is that in addition to the ride quality, that when you flat, when a rider flats, they can keep riding it for a little bit without the tire coming off. Uh, so it's a bit safer than a clincher or a tubeless where there's the potential for the tire to come off with the liner that acts as like a wedge to keep the, the tire bead like right up against the rim. So the, the tire is not going to come off. And it also acts 
Mark, I've got a very soft flat tire. It doesn't feel um, like a fully inflated tire, but it feels like you've got about 20 PSI in your tire or so. So that's, and it adds not very much weight. So that's, that's a standard thing now in, at least for, you know, EF education, um, easy post riders riding on Vittoria tires. I enjoy seeing some of the, the variations, you know, just seeing what little tricks riders are doing, you know, that's either a tangible, measurable benefit or it's just like a psychological benefit in their head. You know, Victor Campenarts um, had a fun set up on Wednesday at Dwarves where the rest of his team is on Vittoria and uh, KMC chains with just normal lube. He was running Continental's latest tubeless tires, which, you know, we've measured uh, through Wheel Energy Lab in Finland, the rolling resistance of a bunch of different tires for the classics. And the prior Continental came out a scooch faster than the current Vittoria. And this latest Continental is uh, claimed to be even faster. So he was on those with the, you know, mechanic had taken a Sharpie and marked off the, the Continental labeling out of deference to the sponsor. But he had those on, then he had you know, wax on his chain, which again, just a marginal gain, right? Just a small little reduction uh, in drivetrain friction. And then he was running a monster 58 tooth chain ring, um, which he used to attack on the downhills. You know, putting in some of your stories, you've noted that now that the super tuck is banned, where, you know, super tuck is a position where you rider comes off their saddle, sits on their top tube to you know reduce their profile and go faster downhill. Now that that's banned, uh, riders are looking for ways to, to get skinny, to get small and go fast, uh, and some of that's you know narrower handlebars rolling in the the shifters on their bikes to to bring their forearms their hands and forearms closer together. And Campen Arts is is one of those guys. You know he was former World Hour record holder, you know European and uh, national time trial champion. So he knows how to get himself small and go fast. And got doors he attacked on one downhill and just rode away from Pidcock. And Pidcock afterwards was like, I don't know if he was like riding on the motorcycle or what, but I was fifty three eleven spun out and he was riding away from me. And, Someone had to point out, well, yeah, it's because he had a 58 on there. But that's always interesting to see. And the, you know, back to the EF education, they they are also running 54 big rings as standard for Ford Classics. And part of that is 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 uh, a marginal gains thing, not to have the biggest chain ring out there to, to smash a 5411, but to keep the chain ring, or I'm sorry, the chain line straighter so the chain's more like in the middle of the block. Um, because that just a you know a, a tiny but measurable improvement in drivetrain efficiency. So that's just always fun to to see what the what the pros and the teams are doing to make these tiny little tweaks. Will those keep you on Bogatra's wheel as he goes up the Paderberg the last time? It's not guaranteed, but you know it doesn't it doesn't hurt. And those are all like many of those tricks are things that we can employ at home. So so always. Fun to see, and and certainly worth checking out on our website. If you go to the Bell News Gear section, you can you can dig into those details. So what is what is coming up, Hoodie? Where does where does the calendar point now? We're uh, at the front of April. What are we what are we looking at? Yeah, we got uh, this week's the Bass Country Tour that wraps up. Uh, that's where we kind of get the first glimpse. I mean, uh, Roglic is already. Riding fast there, and then be ramping up towards the Giro. The Roman D's coming up later on this month, and then uh, Tour of the Alps. That's the kind of two big uh, races ahead of the Giro. The Giro cranks up uh, not too far away. We're pretty close to Grand Tour racing season, and then of course in the classics, you know, we still have um, 
Shell Dupree, which will be this week. And then we have Emstil Gold. And of course, Robay, Brabante Peel, for Emstil and uh, Roubaix. And of course, Roubaix, because of the French elections, two weeks later than normal. So that's why we have the flop between Emstel, Roubaix, and then we go into Flechoyon and Liège at the end of this month. So still, I mean, really almost a whole other month of classic season ahead of us. I mean, if you're a bike racing fan and you want to get close to your bike racing uh, idols, man, go hang out in Ghent, rent an apartment, get an Airbnb, bring your bike. We've done it. It's a great way to see bike racing. And this is like probably the best month to be around bike racing. Could bring some good, uh, bring some rain gear and some warm clothes too, because you never know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, as you said, yeah, that's something that we, one of the many things we love about the, the classics is all the different ways you can engage with them. And some of it's just, you know, selfish journalistic things like a stage race is a fun thing, but you're spending time in a car bouncing from town to town to town during the classics as a fan or even as a journalist, you can post up in one spot for a while, get, really get to know the place. This part of the world is so bike friendly. It's ridiculous. You can just hop on your bike and pedal off in any direction. And there will either be um, a, a bike lane on the road or the road will be so small and the driver so friendly. You can, you can basically ride wherever, which is certainly you know coming from the United States, not, not the case here. So that's always a welcome thing. Um, and you can go ride the, the roads you see the, uh, the the biggest names of sports on in the biggest races. So yes, agreed hoodie. We, we endorse this. We endorse this on the gravel side of things. I'm headed to sea otter here, uh, this week, uh, with my colleagues, Betsy Welch and Daniel Benson, the lifetime grand prix kicks off this weekend. That's the, uh, six race series with a quarter million dollars on tap three mountain bike races, three gravel races. The, you know, the first one there is the Enfuego uh, cross country race at Sea Otter. So that's going to be fun to see how well some of these uh, gravel racers fare uh, with a flat bar. Um, we'll be talking to some of those folks out there. That will be our next podcast next week, talking to the riders of the Lifetime Grand Prix. And then we're into the Belgian waffle ride of, uh, series there's you know four races starting with the original in san diego um so we'll be out there for that and as with uh going to belgium to to watch and to ride we also endorse going to belgian waffle ride to 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 watch and to ride and enjoy it's a little bit closer to home uh, a lot of similar vibes but with a uniquely american spin so certainly be looking forward to all of that but uh andy hood Thank you for your time. We'll, we will leave it there for now. And listeners, thank you, as always, for tuning in to the Velo News Podcast. Thank you, Ben. Thank you.